Good morning and welcome. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Uh, Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are sort of a parenthesis. Uh, we've been looking at a, an incredible um, doctrinal teaching culminating in chapter 8 uh, on the Holy Spirit. And now before we move into the practical side of things uh, in, the, in the latter part of Romans, we have this little parenthesis, and, and God here is reminding the church that he hasn't forgotten Israel. And there's a number of important issues that come up uh, in these, this parentheses period in these three particular chapters. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about is we've been talking about the sovereignty of God. We've been talking about uh, issues like election, uh, predestination, foreknowledge, uh, some of these things that, that we, we read about at different places in the Scripture, but sometimes we just kind of uh, kind of put that on a back burner. Well, we'll, we'll kind of, this what's this election thing? Um, you know, we kind of put it on a back burner. Well, I'll learn about that later. Um, you know, I think one of the important uh, um, doctrines, if you will, teachings of the Bible that uh, I think is important for us to learn and know and I remember many, many years ago where the Lord began to impress the need to understand the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign, that, that God is in control. Even though things in this world look like they're out of control, uh, we know our God sits on the throne, amen? Um, there was that, there's a verse, I think, over in Psalms, it might be chapter 11 in the Psalms, that if the foundations be destroyed, what Will the righteous do? You know, we're we just going to wring our hands. You know, we're we going to pull our hair out. Uh, we're going to get mad. Uh, you know, we're going to, uh, you know, just respond in a political kind of a way. Um, and it's interesting that next verse says that God is on his throne. And, and he's simply reminding us there. You know, one of the, one of the uh, doctrines and teachings that come out of the Bible is fret not for evildoers. Uh, when we look at the things that are going on in the world today, you know, we need to trust him. We need to look to him. And um, so uh, we want to pick up here uh, in verse 17 of chapter 9. Go ahead and read that through the end of the chapter. And uh, we, in, we entitled this, uh, God is Sovereign and I Am Not. Amen. <laughs> uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose, um, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. And therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, on whom he wills, or he wills, he hardens. Uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Uh, for who has resisted his will? Yeah, we have. <laughs> But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing say form to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. We're going to talk about that. And he that, <clears throat> that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, even us whom he has called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And as he says also in Hosea, the prophet, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who is not my beloved. Uh, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall, you shall be called, or they shall be called, the sons of the children of the living God. And Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet. Uh, Though the number of the children of Israel be as a sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Saoboth, as the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts, had left us a seed, 
we would have become like Sodom, that we would have been like unto Gomorrah. And so what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness uh, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law or the deeds of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, which is Christ. And as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Amen? <laughs> Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us guidance, Lord, through the scriptures. And I pray that, Father, as we cover this portion today, that, Lord, you would give us insight and give us understanding. Lord, there are so many that, Lord, uh, when they read these verses, to take them out of context and to consider that you're unfair, that you're unkind, that, Lord, you just pick people out at random and say, you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. We thank you you're not like that. We thank you you're gracious and you're kind. You're merciful. You are so good, so kind, so gracious, way beyond our comprehension that, Lord, you came in the person of your son. You died on a cross. You paid our debt. Lord, you became our substitute. You took our place. You took our place in judgment. And so help us, I pray. Help us to understand that kind of love. That measure of great mercy. That, Lord, you have been extending now for over 2,000 years. Lord, reaching out to a lost and dying world. Lord, you revealed yourself to us. And we're so grateful for that. So honored by that. And Lord, we long to see, Lord, your redemptive power work in the lives of our friends, loved ones, neighbors. Lord, our communities. Lord, our nation in general. Because we know, Lord, we know the change that you can bring. Lord, we know that you're the one who sets people free. You're the chain breaker. You're the emancipator. Lord, you're the one that calls us into this, this greatest relationship, a relationship of love, knowing you. Lord, knowing your heart, knowing you, the, the person, the very person of God. And I know that, Lord, you've only begun to scratch the surface of that. But, Lord, what we've discovered already is wonderful, is awesome. And Lord, we long to see that, Lord, take place. Lord, in our nation, our nation so troubled today, so divided, and so full of anger and, and hatred and violence. And, Lord, you're the Prince of Peace. And how we pray, Lord, that you might come, Lord, in a fresh new way, and to work among us, work through us. Lord, work in us. Be glorified. Meet with us now, Father. Open up the scriptures. We pray to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. When we look at chapter 9, it uh, challenges the way, uh, the natural thinking of man. Uh, you know, we, we tend to think you know, oftentimes natural man thinks that, that we're autonomous. That, in other words, we control the world around us. We, we tend to think that. Uh, but the reality is that uh, we're controlled by so many other different influences in our life. For example, um, you know, as a person, I think we're really influenced by our upbringing, uh, you know, by, you know, our family, our, you know, our personal history in that kind of a way. I think we're formed and shaped, in a sense, by negative events. I think they have an impact on our lives. 
But I think probably more than anything, I think the greatest factor of, of all things is the cultural influences. You know, you look back at history and, you know, it's a, we tend to judge past generations, past cultures. We tend to judge them. But, I, but it's interesting when you look at, at, you know, so many of these people were just, they were a byproduct in a sense of their culture, you know, of the world around them. You know, the Bible refers to as the spirit of the age. And so many people are shaped by that. Uh, but, you know, as we look back and, 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 and you know, the, the culture of today looks back and judge those people, we're shaped also. We're shaped and influenced and impacted, you know, by our, our culture and by our society and the things that are around us. So I think that mankind is not so autonomous, you know, as they think they are. Um, we come to realize that the only way I think you know that is by the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God begins to show us, you know, those things that once controlled us, once were dominant factors, you know, within our life, and we see them. We see that kind of taking place in our culture and in our particular society. And it's only as we allow the Spirit of God and, the, you know, through the Word of God to, to alter us and to change us. Uh, and we realize, too, in that whole process how weak we are, how vulnerable we are, how we are still influenced, you know, in so many ways by our culture. Like the song we were singing just a few moments ago, you know, I need thee. And isn't that the, isn't that the, the theme, in a sense, the mantra of our lives, that we need him? We, we need him, as the old hymn says, we need thee every hour. Uh, well, I, I need to correct that one for me. I need thee every minute, every second. I need to be looking to him. How quickly, isn't it, isn't it interesting how quickly we can just slide away? How quickly we can drift? Uh, how quickly our minds can move in another direction? And oh, how we need him at work within our life and within our particular experience. Now, in chapter 9 here, the question that arises here <clears throat> as we're basically midstream in this chapter, uh, is, is God unjust? Uh, oftentimes people will think God is unfair, you know, God is unjust. Why is this happening to me? Uh, you know, when things happen, it's interesting when well, people don't really give God the time of day, but yet when it comes to the different, you know, negative experience and events of life, uh, right away um, they recognize God's sovereignty. Right away, they're, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this? You know, why are you purposing this? And there's some people that have just you know, really gotten angry at God, um, you know, angry at, uh, you know, the Bible, angry at the church and, you know, anybody that might represent God, uh, thinking that God is simply, you know, unfair. But God, I'll tell you what, uh, particularly as we look at these verses here today, uh, we see the great mercy of God, the great uh, uh, love and compassion you know, it's interesting, too, because we tend to think that we're more compassionate than God. We are not. We are not more merciful. We are not more loving. We are not more kind. And we are not more fair, you know, than God is. Uh, God is the ultimate. You know, he's the ultimate. He's a person. He's the ultimate person. Um, and, and he has the greatest measure of love. And he is fair. He is kind. Um, and, and much more than we can ever imagine. And I think Paul is hoping uh, to bring that out here. He says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, again, this, this wicked, evil guy, uh, we're talking about the Pharaoh who lived uh, during the time of Moses and the Exodus, um, that we, the, the accounts that we have over there in Exodus. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared uh, in all the earth. Uh, so again, God gave him his position, God gave him power. Yet we find as we look at this man, he was a very proud tyrant. Uh, you know, it's interesting, you know, God doesn't harden anybody um, unless they've hardened themselves first. You know, when you go back and you look at uh, three different Hebrew words are actually used for harden in the uh, Exodus account. Uh, and, and it's referred there 20 different times uh, of hardening. But it's 10 God hardening and 10 man hardening. Okay, and so you see, yes, God is sovereign, but we have a responsibility. How to respond? Um, and, and again, God mercifully, uh, you know, you look at some of the pharaohs before this man, and, and they were incredibly blessed of God. Uh, but here this man was a tyrant, and God didn't just say, you know, I'm going to make you hard to make, prove my point. No, God is not like that. I've, sometimes I've heard, you know, predestination and sovereignty kind of preach like that. Um, and it makes God look hard. God is gracious. He is kind. He is merciful. He does not harden people, uh, only as they harden themselves against God. 
you know, in their sin, God gives them opportunity. And of course, we see in that whole, that whole exchange between Moses and Pharaoh that God was giving him an opportunity as he was speaking through, you know, Moses uh, to this man that he had an opportunity to turn at any time. But every time uh, he just sort of turned, you know, in the wrong way when finally, uh, you know, God had to really strike uh, his own family um, that's when he finally capitulated and gave in. But again, you know, God in his sovereignty is just, he is fair. Um, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. And again, you know, that, you know, that's God, his prerogative, yet he doesn't do it without justification. He just doesn't do that without justification. Um, you know, when a person, you know, thumbs their nose at God, uh, they're going to experience all kinds of difficulties in life. The Bible says the way of the transgressor, the way of the sinful person is a very hard road. It's a very difficult place. Um, you know, whenever a person turns from the true and the living God. And when God, you know, hardens somebody, in other words, you know, God will make resolute the decisions that people make when people refuse God, you know. Um, you know and I believe that God is so gracious and patient with people, that he works, you know, he works through them, not just, you know, one time, you know, you know, sometimes, you know, you, like maybe you give somebody an opportunity to do something, they say, no, well, you turn away, I'm done with you. God isn't like that. God is merciful, he's gracious, he's kind, and I think he gives years and decades, um, and I think, you know, even, you know, uh, you know when you think about it, uh, um, I've, seen, I've seen many people come to Christ, you know, at the, at the sunset of their life. It's like the thief on the cross, 11th hour kind of salvation. In other words, God gives people, you know, so many opportunities to respond, to repent, to turn to them. But finally, and God sees when the heart gets so hard that he just sort of makes resolute that decision that that person has made. So God, again, he's fair. He's gracious. He's fair. He gives people an opportunity because he knows what he, 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 he sees the horrific and horrible eternity that somebody will live outside of God and God's blessing. So he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, there's three questions here in verses uh, 19 uh, and 20. And you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted uh, his will? And the thing is, you know what, we have accountability. I believe that we, we, we have the freedom of choice, uh, whether you want to call it free will, whatever you want to uh, call it. I believe that uh, I believe it, it's a limited free will because sin damages a person. Um, but I believe that, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, when, when God comes into the life of someone to work in their life, it's called, it's called prevenient grace. And that's the grace that comes to us uh, in order to help us to make that decision. Uh, it's sort of the grace that opens our eyes. It's a grace that, that all of a sudden we sense, you know, the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, where he's working within our life. And, and so he gives us those opportunities to respond, you know, to his mercy and to his grace and to his love. But there, there's personal responsibility. And there's accountability, you know, to the sovereignty of God. We need to respond to that. Uh, he helps us with that. There's no doubt about that. Um, like we said uh, we're looking at some, you know, some difficult verses that are hard to understand. Remember, uh, I think it's Ephesians chapter 1, that we've been chosen from the foundations of the world. Um, can't quite get my brain around that one. I'm sorry. But uh, uh, Jesus over in John 15, yeah, you've not chosen me. Uh, I've chosen you. Uh, do we make a choice? Yeah, we make a choice. But we make a choice because he's chosen us, okay? <laughs> and uh, um, yes, we have you know, personal responsibility. Uh, to respond, you know, to that offer of salvation, to the grace of God. Um, and again, I think God is, 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 is greatly merciful. At times, I believe, years on end reaching out. Uh, what about your own case? How long did it take you to come to Christ? Maybe you grew, grew up in a Christian family. Maybe, maybe you grew up, uh, maybe you be, you, there were people, Christians hounding you your whole life, and you didn't come to Christ. I remember there was one brother uh, came to the church, um, uh, a while back there, and uh, he didn't come to Christ till he was 58 years old. And, uh, you know, there had been a number of, you know, uh, attempts of the Lord reaching him through different people. He kept kind of putting off and putting off, and, and then finally he came to that point where uh, he didn't want to resist anymore, and God wonderfully um, accommodated that and stepped into his life. 
He says, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? He's saying basically, you know, don't talk back to God. Respect Him. Um, You know, respect His mercy. Respect His truth. Respect His sovereignty. Um, And... uh, and will you then will, will will the thing rather form say to him that formed it, why have you made me like this? So again, personal dis- choices and decisions, you know, they have consequences. You know, God God we can't blame God, you know, for the decisions that we make. A lot of people try to do that. We run our life in a very independent kind of a way, uh, trying to be, you know, uh, uh, autonomous. And uh, we find out how, and isn't it oftentimes the very thing that brought us to Christ as, we, as our decisions wrecked our life uh, to a certain degree, or we realized simply how empty we were in our self-will and in, in all of that kind of a uh, you know, situation. Those oftentimes you know, were the things that really brought us uh, to see our need for the Savior, to see how, how foolish, and sometimes it's some incredibly foolish decisions that we have to make and suffer the consequences of those things. Um, that really bring us to the Savior when we realize um, we can't trust ourselves. You know, <laughs> uh, Jeremiah was just talking this uh, w- with somebody regarding that. Um, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful of, of all things. Uh, you know, Pascal said there are things in our heart that our mind doesn't know. <laughs> it's true. You know, there are secretive, there are desires, there are secret things in our heart that our mind doesn't really know. And sometimes, even as Christians, sometimes we cannot, we don't realize, you know, it's easy sometimes, I think, even as Christians, because we've, we've experienced the righteousness of Christ, to judge other people. To judge other people for their weaknesses and for the things that they're going through. And we judge people on that basis because I've never done that. So therefore, I must be pretty righteous. I have not ever done that. And so sometimes, you know, you go and you shake your finger at them and you scold them and you, you tell them how to square their life away. And then all of a sudden, something happens in your life, and it humbles you in a great way. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes, as believers, you know, we need that. We can, we can be intensely you know, um, legalistic and self-righteous about our own righteousness. You know, I've kept myself, you know, and now I'm going to write a book about, how, about all my methods on, you know, um, of the, the perfect Christian life. You know, kind of thing. And the fact of the matter is you find out that none of us are perfect. Amen. We just serve a perfect God and Father. And, uh, and you know something? I, I don't want to dampen you too much this morning. but <laughs> You're never going to get perfect, okay? Now, we strive towards that. Yes, we strive towards that. We, we want to be better. We want to we do good. We want to do right. We want to be pleasing the Lord. Uh, but we're never going to arrive, you know, I think Paul tells us that, doesn't he, in Philippians? We never get to this place where we, uh, arrivederci, we have finally arrived, we're here, you know, kind of a thing. That will happen when we transfer over, amen, and we're in glory, then, then we'll say arrivederci. We are finally, we are there. Now, verse 21, he gives us an illustration here about the potter from Je- uh, Jeremiah chapter 18. When he's speaking here, you know, basically about this whole matter you know, of sovereignty, uh, you know, of God's control and so forth. He says, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? In other words, the, the clay belongs to the potter. He didn't really create the clay, but it simply belongs to him. And he has a prerogative to make whatever he wants with it. And, and the, po- the point that I think Paul is simply making is that God has created us. And, and he does have a prerogative to make what he wants. Now, when it speaks about a vessel unto honor and dishonor, um, he's speaking about something that may be something that's made for noble use and something that's made for everyday use. Um, say that, you know, the potter makes a vase, you know, the Ming vase, uh, you know, whatever that is worth. We know it's worth a lot of money. We've heard about the Ming dynasty and, you know, the the Ming China ware and that sort of thing. It must be worth an incredible amount of money. Uh, but then uh, the potter also makes a toilet bowl uh, out of the other clay that he has. Um, you will tell you what, the, 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 the Ming vase may look good, but the toilet's a lot more use, okay? <laughs> very, very practical. Um, 
You know, and, and, and again, God has, this, God has a prerogative to make. You know, it's like the fact of the matter is, you know, aren't we common vessels? Aren't we just, you know, we're not, uh, we're not any Ming, Ming vases here, okay? We're just, we're, re- we're regular teacups, okay? And, uh, and God, has, God is glorified in that, isn't he? God is glorified in the fact that he has just made us. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's the beauty, isn't it, of the grace of God, um, that he doesn't save just all the, the good-looking people. And you're all beautiful. You're all very beautiful. I just want to assure you of that. But he doesn't just save all the smart people, all the beautiful people, all the wealthy people, all the royalty. As a matter of fact, he saves a lot lesser of them than he does us. Because we realize in our ordinariness, we need him. We need his grace. We need his mercy. How gracious and kind that he is. So doesn't, if, if the potter has a certain prerogative, doesn't our creator? Doesn't our creator? And, and God can be glorified in the regular everyday teacup. Tea he can, and he is. Now, he speaks of two different groups here in verses 22 and 23. Uh, one of the things that he reminds us here that God is slow to anger. He has great patience. Remember, he's not willing. It's God's will. Isn't it interesting? He's not willing that any should perish, the Bible tells us. But why do people perish? Because of their will. They set their will against God. He's not willing that any should perish. He's patient. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. Now, I believe these verses do not teach. They teach against double predestination. And let me tell you what double predestination is. That not only does God predestine people to go to heaven, but he predestines them to go to hell. I want to read to you uh, a little piece here that I gleaned from my readings. Kent Hughes is a Calvinist. Kent Hughes is a Calvinist. And he says, Calvin was very guilty at this point. He attempted to deduce from this passage what has come to be called double predestination. The Bible nowhere announces the predestination of the lost. It would seem that Calvin and others have drawn an inference in purely human logic. They would hold that the choice of Jacob implies the reprobation of Esau. Both of these brothers were born in sin. Both had the nature of Adam. They both grew up in sin. They were both children of wrath, disobedient by nature. If there had been any merit in these two sons, God would have been unjust in not rewarding that merit. The choice of one deserving man over another deserving man would have been favoritism. When we see that the two were equally undeserving, the whole picture becomes different. Everything that is said in the entire Bible about the nature of fallen man may be said and must be said, and about both Jacob and Esau. And God determined for causes that are not to be found in himself. God determined for causes that are not to be found in himself and have not been revealed to us to show favor rather to Jacob. Hard for us to understand why God is merciful to one. And gracious to one. Hard to, under, hard to fully understand that, but we know this for sure. We know this for sure. God doesn't, send, God doesn't predestine and say, I'm sending you to hell. I want to show you something. I think in our, most of our Bibles, I think there's some, um, a little hyper-Calvinistic influence. I want you to note verse 22. And verse 22, 23 rather, in both those verses we have the word prepared. But if you go into the Greek, they're different words. When you talk about vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, two different words when it says prepared there. Now if you have a King James, the King James gets it right here. When the King James says that they are fitted for destruction. 
And then the vessels of glory are prepared beforehand by God. He endured with much long suffering. The vessels of wrath prepared are fitted. That's the, that's, the, the word is actually katarazo. And I'm probably slaughtering the Greek, okay? And it mean, it's, it's spoken in the Greek in the middle voice, which means basically a person's acting out of their own self-interest. What does that mean? That means when a person goes to hell, they fit themselves for it. And, and one, of the, one of the great Calvinists of all time, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, says this. He says, the significance of the word is that the apostle does not say that it is God who fits them for this. All he says is that they have, fit, they have been fitted for destruction. He does not tell us who has fitted them. Why is this so important? For this reason, in the 23rd verse, when we come to the vessels of mercy, what we read is, which he has per, afore, per, before prepared unto glory. In other words, God has not prepared the vessels of wrath to destruction, but he has prepared the vessels of mercy unto glory, which, of course, puts this uh, absolutely into line with what we have seen in our previous exposition. God never created a sinner. He did not create the lump of fallen humanity. God created man perfect in his own image and likeness. And as he created the whole world perfect, it is, it is man who fits himself for destruction. Hmm. That's why Paul's saying it's wrong for somebody to say, well, why does God find fault? He just made me like this. He made me a sinner. He made me love sin. No, no. We, there is a personal responsibility for our decisions, for our choices. And if a person is going to go to hell, it's because they fit themselves for it. Their choices, their decisions, the consequences of their life. Even though in the midst of all that process, God is reaching out to save them. I mean, God pleads all through the Bible, turn ye, turn ye. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, that's what he tells, that Paul says, that's what he did. He would go and plead with people. And isn't that our call in a sense? To pray for people, to plead with people, to intervene. Because God wants them to turn. God sees the end of it all. And again, he's so merciful and kind that he has saved millions of people the world over to represent him to a dying culture, to a Christless society. And God help us to represent him in the right way. Not to be judging people. Not to be judging people. One of the things why Israel got self-righteous of old is they forgot, they, they, they forgot that the, the pit they came from. We have to remember what we came from. We're, we're still sinners. We're still sinners, but we're saved by the grace of God. And that's what gives us a relatability to the many people that are around our lives. And, and, in, and, to, and, you know, it's interesting. Every one of us have a sphere of activity and, and certain people that we know. And in a sense, you are the gospel to them. You're the walking Bible to them. So, so make sure they hear something from you. They, they, need to, they, they need to not only watch you, which they do, but they really, at some time, they need to hear you. They need to hear the truth of the grace of God at work within your life. So there's two different words here. The one is katsurazo in verse uh, uh, 22, and in verse 23 it's the word proetomizo. And again, I'm probably slaughtering these Greek words. But they're two different words, and they mean two different things. So again, the point is, the Bible doesn't teach double predestination. 
people fit themselves for that. Now, Paul reminds us, moving into some uh, Old Testament quotations here, uh, <clears throat> he says, uh, from Hosea, verse 25 and 26, he says, he also says in Hosea, I will call my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. Uh, there they uh, shall be called the sons of the living God. So again here, you know, he's speaking about his sovereignty and his care of all creation, and particularly, you know, to the Gentile world. Because you know what? God's people had a bias. They had a bias. Remember when Jesus came, and he was even in his own hometown in Nazareth, and he began to, remember his first sermon there when he spoke about the, God sent Elijah to the Gentiles? Okay. What happened there? <gasps> you know, in the sermon early on, they're praising him for his gracious words. But he said the G word. And it's like everybody, you know, start pulling their hair out, uh, ripping their clothes. And, and they tried to kill him. They, 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 they tried to kill him and, and take him to a cliff and throw him over the cliff. It must have been an interesting scene, you know, like, here we got him. And it's like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? You know, kind of a thing. As he, you know, it wasn't his time. But they had a, a bias there. there. There was a bias there where they thought God loved us only. And you know, the church, we need, to be we need to be careful of that. There's a danger there. That we don't, you know, I remember when I first got saved, Lord, I'm saved, okay, rapture. Time for the rapture, I'm saved. <laughs> a lot of people, the Lord wants to reach out and touch. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, uh, sea, rather, a remnant will be saved. So concerning Israel, you know, there was the physical nation, those who were Jews. Then there was a spiritual Israel, which is the remnant he's speaking about. Remember over when we were in chapter 2, Paul spoke, uh, spoke about that in Romans chapter 2, that there was many people, they, you know, they, they were Jewish in their DNA, but they weren't really the spiritual Israel. And so there's two groups. You know, I think, this, I think it's also true of the church, isn't it? Not everybody that professes the name of Christ or professes Christianity. They don't oftentimes profess the name of Christ, but profess Christianity. Because they belong to a church that they're automatically saved. I, I, I think there's, there's a remnant. There's always been a remnant. God's true people have always been a remnant. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Remember Jesus, you, know, God, you think about God's redemptive plan on the cross. It is finished. It is finished. The work of redemption. All the work to be done. All, all we had to do was just simply what? Believe. To put our faith, to put our trust in what he had wonderfully done. And because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. You know, the Bible does remind us, doesn't it, time and time again, time is short. Time is short. The Bible says today's the day. Now is the accepted time. If uh, you have not made that decision, you need to do that. You need to make that decision for Christ. Uh, don't, you don't, why linger? Why put it off? You can only examine it so much, you just need to step in by faith. Remember the scripture says, by faith we understand. Faith comes before understanding. You know, we stand on the outside of, you know, of, of, of belief in God, and we try to, you know, we try to scientifically examine it and look at it and, you know, what, what is this group saying here? What's this group saying over there? You know, you just got to put your faith in the, in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. That settles the issue. It's so simple, isn't it? Redemption. But it's a short work. In the whole scheme of things, it's a very short work. There'll be a day that we will all stand in eternity. You say, wasn't that a quick life? Boy, wasn't that quick? 
Don't we say that about life now? Oh, you have to be older to say that I'm sorry. You, have, you, know. you really have to be older to appreciate that. Where did my life go? But we will stand together someday in eternity and look back. It'd be like a dream. Thankfully. And as Isaiah said again, another quote from Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Saoboth, Lord of armies, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. These ancient cities are a reminder that God will judge sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned over 50 times in the Bible. Never. Never in a good context. I think for anyone living in sexual sin, they need to turn to Christ. He will set us free. And I'll tell you what, folks. We are living in a time of ultra-sexualization of all things. We got a message. He's a chain breaker. He can cleanse. He can purify. He can give a new beginning. He can heal us. We have to turn to him. Help us to do that. In verse uh, 30, perhaps a repeat of verse 14. You know, what shall we say then is their unrighteousness with God, as he says over there in verse 14. That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. Again, religious people oftentimes think God is unfair because why? They don't like grace. Religious people are pursuing God on their own terms. God, I did this. You owe this to me. I've been a good person. You owe this to me. Or maybe a rich man might, might say, well, I wasn't a very church person, but, you know, I gave a million dollars to that church. I remember years ago, comes to mind, that... Uh, a man walked into Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And he was an unchurched man. And he wanted to give a million dollars to the church. And Pastor Chuck wouldn't take it. Wouldn't receive it. Incredible, isn't it? Those guys never come to my door. <laughs> But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Any mindset that, again, religious mindset that is based on our good deeds, our pursuit of God, it's futile. Aren't you thankful he pursued you? Oh, thank you, Jesus. The last person I was looking for when God interrupted my life was him. I mean, I tried to talk my wife out of it. She, she gave her heart to Christ. And she said to me, Ray, you know the thing you're always looking for? I found it. Well, who is it? It's Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for something else. And I think, I think, that's the, the, I think that is the aspiration for many people. I, the thing is, there is a spiritual hunger that I believe God places in the heart, and we try to fulfill it and all these other, plug in ourselves into all these other things. 
And again, I think, you know, one of the big things today that people are trying to satisfy that inner hunger, that inner longing, that inner need for relationship is sex. And relationship with Jesus Christ is the greatest of all intimacy, of all relationships. Well, he says here in conclusion, and again, he's touching here on human responsibility. Yeah, we're talking about sovereignty. We're talking about electricity. He's also, too, talking about human responsibility. Why? Verse 32, because they did not seek it by faith. Many people miss God. They can be around the Christianity and churchianity. Or some religious organization. And yet miss God. And we have the lessons of faith in the Bible that begin all the way in Genesis with Abraham. Showing it's a, it's a relationship that is based on trust. Trusting God. Believing God, taking God at his word. And when we take God at his word, he imputes, he transfers to you, to anyone, his awesome righteousness. Is that a deal or what? They did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. In other words, they got caught up in religiosity. Many people get caught up in religious motions, religious activity. You know, for them it was the whole sacrificial system and all the traditions that went with it. They were all pointing to him, but they were not an end in itself. Doing good deeds is not an end in itself. We do good deeds because he's in us. And we're just expressing what he's done for us. And as it were, or excuse me, but they stumbled at the stumbling stone. For as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So how does one please God? What's interesting is pleasing God is a lot easier actually than pleasing some people. Did you ever work for a taskmaster? No matter what you do, it ain't good enough. Tough living around that kind of thing. So basically, how do we please God? It's interesting that Paul brings out that Christ would become the stumbling stone, a rock of offense. And one author says that it's sort of like this giant boulevard, and all humanity is streaming down the boulevard. And there's the rock of there, there is the stone right there. The, the chief cornerstone, he's right there in the middle of the highway. And some people are, you know, approaching it. It's like, why is that thing there? And then other people are just sort of tripping on it and falling over it. And that rock is Christ. I think what happened to us that got saved, we just kind of, we tripped over it. And then we got up and we looked at it. And all of a sudden, the rocks start talking to us. And we realized it just represented the very person of Christ, his mercy, his goodness. Well, we're going to close. If this morning you want to declare 
your faith in him. He is so good. He is so gracious. I'm glad he saved me and chose me before the foundations of the world because once I was born, he would have never chose me. I wouldn't have chose me. But that's his great heart. That's his great love. If you want to choose him today, would you stand up, please? If you want to choose him today. Okay. Just declaring your faith. Father, we are so grateful that you are indeed sovereign and we are not. Lord, I've come to realize I really don't control much at all. And I'm thankful, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us for the great God, the gracious God, the kind God. The God who doesn't, is not a tyrant. The God who came to this earth and took on flesh to demonstrate your love. You died for us. You took our punishment, you took our judgment, and you trade us. You, you give us this incredible Lord, righteousness in this eternal relationship. And for that, we're so thankful. I pray for those who have stood to declare, whether it's the first time or the tenth time, to simply declare their faith, their love. There's never any shame in declaring, Lord, what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you. You took our shame. You took it on the cross. And Lord, you just keep giving to us. You're so generous, Lord. So I pray, Father, for us. Lord, each one of us, Lord, are a part of your, your body. Lord, help us, we pray, to have the love of Christ to compel us to go into the highways and byways. Lord, to rejoice in what you've done for each and every one of us. Lord, for so many are groping, groping in darkness, looking for another relationship or just something, something, anything that will satisfy them. Lord, thank you how you have revealed yourself to us and we have discovered that. So I pray, Father, for, for us, for your people. Guide and bless us as we go. Help us to live for you, Lord. Help us to walk with you. Help us to glorify you. In Jesus' name.